Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillars Podcast, the first episode. That's right. It's a new name, but I am still your host, Dylan Bowman. And I hope you had a wonderful holiday and new year. And we are starting off 2021 with an Ask Me Anything, the first of these that I've done. I put out the bat signal on Instagram and got a lot of really great questions. So I'm going to power through a bunch of them now until I start to feel like I'm rambling too much and hopefully leave you all with some of my limited wisdom. I've got a lot of uh, really fun guests lined up for the next several weeks that I'm super excited about. But for now, you're stuck with me and me alone. So thanks for being here. Before we get to it, just want to give a quick update on the Pillars app that I've been teasing for a couple of weeks now. Uh, many have asked, so I just wanted to reinforce here that, of course, we are a bit delayed due to the holiday days in final app store approval, a little frustrating, but really it's no big deal. Uh, so thank you guys so much for your patience. I was hoping to have the app available by the time we changed the name of the podcast, but beggars can't be choosers as they say, and it's given me an opportunity to practice patience myself, which is definitely not my strong suit. So deep breaths, deep breaths. It is coming. Um, If you haven't already, please do go to pillars.com and subscribe to the mailing list there and also follow at pillars on Instagram so that you can stay up to date. I will put those links in the show notes. But for now, let's get started. Ask me anything. Question number one comes from Jason Hardrath on Instagram. And he asks, what are three things that young athletes should focus on developing in addition to their performance? This is such a good question. And it's something that I think about a lot and care about a lot. As I get a little bit older myself, one of my biggest motivations now, and one of the things I'm most interested in doing going forward is being more of a mentor to younger athletes who are coming up behind me and passing along some of the advice and experience that I gained from those that came before me as well. Um, And so this is a really great question. And um, as I interact with people digitally or otherwise, this is a question that I do get a lot. And so I think it's important to touch on here. First and foremost, what I would say as it relates to things that you can do or things that you should focus on developing is an investment in yourself. I think this is such an important thing for young athletes or athletes in general to think about. But as it relates to young athletes, you know, I I often get asked, how can I get hooked up with Red Bull or how can I get hooked up with North Face or how do I get sponsors? And I always tell people who ask that question that you're thinking about it wrong, right? What you need to think about is yourself. And you need to give yourself the opportunities that it takes to be successful, to perform at the level that you know that you can, to put yourself in a position to then get the support and resources from a brand that you find yourself interested in aligning yourself with. And, you know, I think oftentimes people might have this kind of sense of entitlement of, man, I'm super fast. I want to go to CCC, for example, and prove to the world that I'm super fast. And so they go to North Face or Hoka or Solomon and say, hey, buy me a ticket, give me some shoes to go do this race so that I can prove to you that I'm fast. And really they're getting it wrong. What that athlete should do is invest in him or herself. Give themselves that opportunity. Don't rely on a brand with a budget to give you that opportunity. It may mean that you have to go to friends or family, borrow some money, go into a little bit of debt. But I'm a firm believer that when you give yourself that opportunity, and maybe put yourself in an uncomfortable position where you desperately need to perform well, 
to achieve this goal, to get to the next level, the universe has a way of rewarding you for that type of commitment. So invest in yourself when you're young. And similarly, you know, as you get older, investing in your body, pay money to stay healthy, find good body workers and pay them market rate to keep you healthy. Invest in the food that you eat, invest in coaching. These are investments. They're not expenses. So change your mindset there. I think it's just such an important thing. The second thing I want to talk about is, especially as it relates to what young athletes should focus on developing, is just this concept of being more than an athlete. And for those who listened to the podcast that I recorded a couple of weeks ago with my Red Bull manager, Aaron Lutzi, we talked a lot about this. So if you haven't, go back and check that episode out because he is a wealth of knowledge on this front. Um, but being more than an athlete is so important. I mean that in two ways. In the podcast that I did with Aaron, he talks about a moment in his career when he was a professional mountain biker, when somebody said something to him that totally changed his perspective on who he was and how he was seen by the industry broadly. And that was a phrase, a simple three-word sentence that you are entertainment. And it changed his perspective, helped him to understand that, you know, it's not enough to just win races, you know? You have to be more than an athlete. You have to provide something more of value to the community, especially, you know, for those of us who aren't Michael Jordan or LeBron James, but, you know, still have really high standards for ourselves, still have big goals that we want to achieve. You know, if you want to make a difference, you have to do it with more than just your performance. So for younger athletes, invest in those relationships, be the type of person that people want to go on a run with. And, you know, also have something else outside of the sport that defines you. This is something that we all have to learn and oftentimes in a painful, painful way. And so learning it when you're younger, I think is super, super important. And, you know, whether it's gardening or reading or your professional job, coaching, being a parent, any of these things have to also be part of who you are as a person and part of your identity because eventually you are going to get hurt. Eventually you are going to have bad races. Eventually you are going to get slower, as sad as it is. And so you have to have something else that defines you as an athlete. So that would be the second piece of advice I would give to a younger athlete. And third, I would say, especially early in your career, emphasize gaining experience and learning over performance. So don't worry too much about like your performance, you know, don't worry about like competing against um, or winning, you know, these, these big races. Focus more on gaining experience, competing against the men and women who you, whose league you want to be in. Gaining experience is so important, obviously, in every walk of life, but, you know, especially in endurance sport and especially in ultra running where there's so many variables, there's so many different distances, there's so many different types of courses, there's so many different strategies that can be employed. So learn, learn, learn. Don't specialize. Don't only go to races where you think you're going to perform well. Instead, find opportunities to race against good competition and learn, learn, learn. Don't specialize. It's like David Epstein's book, Range. It's so important. Early in your career, gain experience and learn. Okay, next question. What are your top three performances from 2020? So, of course, there weren't a ton of performances, but there were some that I definitely feel excited to talk about. Um, I've written three down here, but, 
you know, of course, there's many more that could be on this list, but these are the three that stood out most to me. Number one, Hayden Hawks, JFK, JFK 50, that took place in November. And, you know, I thought this was obviously an incredible performance, uh, not only uh, because of, you know, the win and the course record, but because I think it was the first time that a new thing had happened. And that new thing is somebody else breaking a course record that was held by Jim Walmsley. <laughs> of course, since Jim's stratospheric entrance into the sport and the absolute dominance that he's exhibited over the course of the last few years, he's broken maybe a million course records somewhere around that, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I believe this was the first time that somebody had broken one of Jim's course records. So it's kind of a new thing and obviously illustrated that Hayden is in that class. And, you know, just to repeat something that I said in my podcast that I did with Hayden, this year's JFK, he ran five hours and 18 minutes. It's 2020. And in 2011, David Riddle ran five hours and 40 minutes to win the race. So Hayden was 22 minutes faster. The thing that's remarkable about this is that David Riddle's performance in 2011 was good enough for ultra runner of the year uh, or performance of the year, I should say, back in 2011. So it really does show just how far the sport has come in such a short time. Obviously, I mean no disrespect to David Riddle. He's super fast, uh, great athlete, um, but the sport has moved and it's moved fast and far. And Hayden is the encapsulation of that. And I cannot freaking wait to see he and Jim go head to head and push each other towards the 100K world record, which of course Hayden teased on the podcast here and which their mutual sponsor Hoka Oneone announced just a few days ago. They're gonna be going after the current 100 kilometer road world record of six hours and nine minutes. Uh, if not at least Max King's American record of six hours and 27 minutes. In addition to Hayden and Jim, I imagine some of their fast Hoka teammates will also be participating, but it'll be so great to see Hayden and Jim go head to head against each other, but also with each other, because I think it's really gonna take both of them to, to push each other to drop that American record or world record by a decent margin. So that was number one for me, Hayden Hawks at JFK. Caitlin Gerben on the Wonderland Trail was number two for me. Um, I think very highly of Caitlin. I tell everybody who I come in contact with how highly I think of her. I think she really does have the potential to be one of, if not the best in the world over the next couple of years. And her performance on the Wonderland Trail um, this year was absolutely amazing to behold in person. I had the pleasure of being there personally. I got to run the last 10 miles with Caitlin and it was like watching LeBron in his prime or like more, maybe more like Serena Williams in her prime. Um, just absolutely amazing, awesome, dominant performance um, and broke the existing FKT on the Wonderland Trail by three and a half hours, which was held by another legend of the sport, Jen Shelton, and also ran the fourth fastest time ever uh, between men and women on the route. So shout out to Caitlin Gerben. That was number two for me. And then third of my top three performances of 2020, I'm gonna cheat and choose both Joey Campanelli and Sabrina Stanley on the Nolan's 14 route. Um, of course, I had Joey on the podcast shortly after he smashed the existing record on the Nolan's route by five and a half hours, just a staggering number, just an absolutely mind-blowing run. And a record that was held by Alex Nichols, who is another athlete who I think very highly of and who I think is one of, if not the most underrated racers on the planet. 
Um, if you didn't listen to that podcast, I would definitely encourage you all to go back and listen to Joey, uh, because you have a lot, there's a lot to learn from him and how he approached it. And just his attitude, his demeanor, his disposition, I think are all super unique and contributed to his success. And I think one of the really interesting things about Joey's attempt or his record shattering performance was that he did it on July 2nd of this year, which was very early in the summer, particularly in 2020, the year of the FKT. And I didn't think, or I didn't hear of any other people who went after the FKT, uh, which to me feels like an indication of just how strongly the ultra running world views that record now. Obviously, Nolan's is a very, very hard thing to go after, and you probably only want to do it if you feel like you have a realistic chance of breaking the record. So even though Joey did it so early in the summer, it didn't seem to me like anybody really gave it a real challenge afterwards, which again, I think is an indication that everybody thought that it might not be touchable, at least this year. And then Sabrina Stanley, OMG, unbelievable, running under 49 hours, I think it was, on the Nolans route, and even more impressively, um, doing Nolans twice in only like eight weeks or something like that is something I just can't wrap my mind around and something I don't think anybody else has ever done. Please do correct me if I'm wrong. I'd be, I'd love to be corrected on that because I, I would be, just be so impressed to hear that anybody else has done Nolan's twice. Of course, there are a few people who, who have done that. I know Jared Campbell's done it a few times. I know Megan Hicks has done it twice. Sabrina Stanley's the second female who's done it twice and maybe the first person to do it twice in a single summer. Just, just crazy. So those are my top three or make it four. Uh, let's see. Next question. This comes from Griffin Toby on Instagram. Um, he says, you talk a lot about how you race your best when you're stoked and willing to completely bury yourself. How have you kept the stoke alive going into hard rock when there have been so many barriers in the last couple of years? This is an awesome question. Um, first of all, dude, it's hard rock. Um, yeah, I mean, if you can't keep the stoke alive when you have a chance to run hard rock, you're in the wrong sport and you should probably hang them up or at least give the spot to somebody else who, who does have that fire. Um, yeah, you know, for those who, who don't know, hard rock's been canceled the last two years. And, um, I was, uh, very excited to be pulled in that lottery way back in, December of 2018, and I'm equally excited to have the opportunity to potentially race, fingers crossed, this coming July, if indeed the race does go forward. Um, but more to the spirit of your question, Griffin, um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely been struggling with seeing hope in the future and whether we'll ever get back to normal. And I definitely have days where I'm convinced that no race will ever happen like it used to ever again. And I have days where I'm quite pessimistic. Um, and I don't think that's totally unreasonable. Um, but what I will say is that I think that the last two years will ultimately be good for me. Um, you know, obviously last year I struggled with injury all year and this year was totally canceled due to COVID, even though I was very ambitious to get back to training and racing. Um, it gave me a great opportunity to finally give my body a rest after a decade of gratuitous abuse, um, I think at this point I've run 56 ultra marathons in my career, um, maybe 57 if you count the Wonderland Trail, which means I've probably done 150 plus runs of ultra distance. 
and have generally gone gone deep in the well more times than is probably healthy. Um, I mean, ultra running is the best sport ever, but these things do have consequences uh, as we've seen throughout the history of the sport. So having those two years in succession to kind of turn the volume down <laughs> on this self-abuse will hopefully allow me to come back uh, with a fresher body and, and maybe have a longer career as a result, which has always been my goal to just kind of chase the dream as long as possible. And I guess the other thing that I think is important to stress here is that these obstacles, you know, being injured all of last year and having COVID cancel this racing season have opened up other doors that I would have never imagined and other opportunities that I would have never pursued. Um, you know, my injuries and, and personal problems in 2019 produced the idea for our new app, Pillars, and everything that happened in 2020 gave me the opportunity to actually turn that into an actual living, breathing thing. Um, and it also allowed me to think in new, creative and like entrepreneurial ways after many years of pretty much doing the same thing over and over and over. And I found that just so, so invigorating on a personal level. And it really did stretch my brain in new ways and really gave me new and powerful motivations. And I, I was actually saying this to somebody the other day um, that, I, you know, I feel about pillars the same way that I felt about ultra running when I was 23 in that I just can't stop thinking about it <laughs> and that I just have this like insatiable desire to learn, uh, to learn more about how I can do it better, you know, about business management and entrepreneurship um, and things that I never had interest in before. And, um, you know, things that really I never thought I would be pursuing. It's exactly how I felt when I was, you know, reading Anton Krupichka's blog back in 2008, just trying to absorb every little piece of knowledge about the sport of ultra running that I possibly could. And I really do think that that's like the drive that we need in life is, is to find the thing that you just can't fucking stop thinking about and just chase it, chase it, chase it. And that's really how I've felt um, about pillars. You know, it feels just like ultra running did. It fires me up and motivates me so much. It inspires me to learn and read and absorb information uh, and reach out to people who have expertise and things that I don't. Um, so I really view the last two years as a blessing. And, you know, I have no doubt that the fire to race and compete will burn as hot as ever as we emerge from this pandemic and start seeing progress again. So to answer your question, it's not hard for me to stay excited about hard rock. Uh, okay, next question. This comes from Todd Wiggins on Instagram. He says, I'm recovering from a mysterious knee problem, experiencing FOMO as I see others do epic runs. How can I stay motivated with my mileage dialed back and with no races on the calendar? So I, I think that the short answer to this is that I don't think you can force motivation. I don't think it's something that you can just pretend to have. So I guess to the question of how can I stay motivated, my response would be that maybe you shouldn't. You know, maybe you should embrace being unmotivated and surrender to the experience of being an injured athlete and trust that when that turns around, the motivation will turn around too. Um, you know, as somebody who has not experienced a lot of injury in my career, but who had a, a full year experiencing it very acutely, um, one of the things that sticks out to me from that experience in 2019 is the word acceptance, the concept of accepting your situation. And this is, again, something that uh, you'll find as a theme throughout our app as well, 
and something that I think is relevant in, in all sports and in all contexts of life. But for me, I was totally unwilling to accept the reality that I was seriously injured. And moreover, I was totally unwilling to accept the implications of what it meant to be injured in terms of my personal identity and the, the sort of like, you know, facade I had constructed for myself and the stories that I was telling myself. And, you know, I was an athlete. That was it. You know, therefore, if I was injured and unable to train and race, I had zero redeeming value in the world. At least that's how I felt. Of course, that wasn't true, but that's how athletes think. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have felt the exact same thing. Going back to the first question and being more than an athlete, making sure that that's not all you are because it is fleeting and it's not sustainable and it's not healthy. Um, and, you know, just, you know, to go back to acceptance, the result of my, my inability to accept that situation definitely prolonged my injury, probably by at least six months, I would guess by forcing myself to train on a body that was clearly rejecting everything that I tried to do. And, um, you know, I remember when I had the realization because it was, it was clear as day that the universe was trying to teach me a lesson. Of course, I broke my ankle in April, trying to get back to training way too quickly, developed just horrible tendonitis in my Achilles on the ankle that I had broken, got to a place where I really couldn't even jog anymore because of my Achilles and my ankle. And instead of using that as my indication that it was time to not be motivated and to accept my situation. Instead, I decided to go on a long bike ride because that's what you do when you're injured. You just keep pushing. You go out on a bike ride. Of course, I crashed my bike, separated my shoulder, got a concussion. And I remember the friendly gentleman who threw my bike in the back of his truck and drove me into town so that I could call my wife and tell her that she had to come pick me up and take me to the hospital again. It was just like, oh my goodness, this was my moment to realize, man, you just have to accept it. You're, you're, the universe is trying to teach you something here. And by rejecting these signals, by trying to force everything, by not accepting the situation that you're in, you're only making it worse. And so to Todd's question and to Todd personally, I think the challenge for you is not to quote unquote, stay motivated. You know, it's to accept where you are now and not attach any fabricated stories to it. Like I did about how I needed to be racing in order to be, you know, a good person, accept where you are and work from there. You can't fake or force the motivation. It'll come at the right time. Hope that helps. Good luck with your recovery. Okay, next question. Let's see. This question, I didn't write down who it came from. So apologies, but the question is, why pillars? What is your desired impact? Uh, and another person also asked me about what we were planning to do in the future, if we were planning to do camps and retreats. So I'll kind of address both of these now. Um, but thanks for the questions. Um, so let's start with why pillars. Um, well, the name, the name came from the physical and emotional philosophy that we talk about and believe in. And we thought about calling the app the well, which we ultimately shelved, um, <clears throat> excuse me, for a few reasons, but mostly because uh, we really liked the name Pillars and we felt that it worked better. And uh, maybe I'll go into more detail into that decision-making process some other time. Doesn't feel like it is necessarily that interesting right now, but you know, it actually is kind of a fun story. So I'll tell it some other time, but um, you know, the reason we, we decided to ultimately do it um, 
to, to ultimately pull this project together was because we thought it was a good idea and that we thought it would have a positive impact on our community and, and also give us a sense of purpose professionally. I mean, this is such an obvious thing to me, you know, that when I race my best, it's always when I have good feelings about myself and my life situation. And right now it's hard to feel good about ourselves and our life situation. It just is like, it's just a tough time in the world, but it's something that we can work on. And, you know, ultimately the goal is to help people be better runners. You know, that's our desired impact in our plan for the future. Like we want to help people be better runners. And as I always say, I think the physical training is only one piece of that. It's an important piece, definitely, but it's only a single piece. And when you balance it with the internal work and the emotional health, that's where the magic happens. And that's where the real performance breakthroughs occur, you know, and I, I think about Elliot Kipchoge, the greatest marathoner of all time, you know, he's famous not only for being so good at what he does, but because he's like just this peaceful person, you know, he just has this calming presence to him. And I really just don't think that's a coincidence. You know, I, I really think that part of the reason why he is totally changed the paradigm of what we thought was possible over the course of 26.2 miles, maybe with a little help from those amazing Nike shoes, is the fact that he's emotionally fit as hell. You know, he's got that part of things figured out. So the training, he just builds on top of that. And, you know, that's when the breakthroughs happen. Um, and then, you know, to answer a little bit about kind of like what our plans are for the future, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in the spirit of what Jim Walmsley said on the podcast and something that really inspires me about him. Um, I have big, big goals for pillars and, um, you know, I'd like to, to state, state a couple of them publicly, you know, like Jim does in order to give myself some accountability, but my dream with Pillars would be to be able to eventually help support aspiring pros much in the same way that a footwear and apparel sponsor would do. Um, and obviously, you know, this is very early days for us and um, that might be far off in the future, but, you know, eventually I would love to get to a place where I can support the people coming up behind me. As I said a little bit earlier, as I get a little bit older, you know, my motivation really is to help shepherd the sport of ultra running and trail running into the next generation and pass, pass on the spirit of the sport to those who are next in line. Um, and it would just give me so much joy to provide the resources and mentorship and opportunities for the next generation as my mentors and sponsors have done for me. So that's a huge, huge goal for me. Um, also, yes, we do plan to do retreats and live events, uh, maybe interview shows uh, around races or maybe locally here in Portland or who knows, maybe we'll go on tour to the great trail running hotspots around and host awesome talks, Q and A's, interview shows. Um, that would be amazing. You know, I think we're all just dying to be able to gather again and, this is really providing me with a lot of um, joy, but also a lot of inspiration and a lot of great ideas that I think, um, you know, you guys might enjoy as well. So I have a lot of big dreams for pillars. So now we just have to get the damn thing off the ground so that we can advance to phase two and phase two is going to be great. And, uh, Hopefully I'll, I'll have more specific updates on that uh, very soon. Um, okay, next question. This comes from Hugh Aaron on Instagram. 
And the question is, what advice do you have for those beginning a mindfulness practice? So, you know, I guess just as a, a caveat on the front end, I'm definitely not like, a, you know, a meditation guru or uh, instructor of any kind, but um, I do have a strong and consistent practice. And, you know, I think this just touches on something that's so important in life. It's just being consistent. You know, it's just like running. It's just like business. It's just like being a good parent. It's just like being a good reader, you know? You just gotta do it. You just gotta freaking do it every day and not make excuses, you know, just like you're running. You know, if you want to get better and improve as a runner, you have to be consistent. You have to be willing to get out every day or at least most every day. And consistency compounds on itself. And it's the law of compounding interest that I think applies to uh, athletics. It applies to business. It applies to gaining knowledge. And it applies to mindfulness practice. You know, consistency is key. And the other thing I would say is just don't feel like you have to do anything. You know, don't feel like you have to like sit and control your breath or stop your thoughts. This was a big light bulb for me. Uh, my brother, who's much more advanced on this subject than me, described something at one of his 10-day Vipassana retreats where his goal was simply to get through this hour meditation without moving at all, just being completely still. That was his goal. It wasn't to reach nirvana or to breathe a certain number of times or you know, anything else. It was just to not move. And I think keeping it simple like that is uh, a really uh, a good way to look at it. You know, Don't feel like you need guidance. Don't feel like you have to do anything. Just use it as, as a time to sit and maybe use sitting still as your, as your guide. Um, but, you know, it touches on something also about pillars and something that we're pretty, um, you know, keen to avoid. And that is like guided, guided meditations. You know, we have functionality where we have um, sort of timers so that you can sit silently and we have these great, lectures, discourses delivered by my brother Jason that you can certainly sit with your eyes closed quietly to quote unquote meditate, but it's not like a guided meditation because we don't want you to feel like you need to do anything. Um, so that's what I would say is simplify it in your own head. Don't set expectations for yourself. Don't feel like you have to accomplish anything when you sit down. Uh, and also just be consistent, just like anything else. That is what will lead to it providing value in your life. Okay, next question. Oh, I love this. This comes from Brandon Barnes on Instagram. He says, what does the future of ultra running look like? And what are your, some of your biggest concerns? Okay, it's a big question. Let's see if I can distill my thoughts here. So I think ultra running will continue to grow in popularity, which is great in my opinion. I want ultra running to continue to grow, preferably big and fast. <laughs> of course, you know, I, there's a lot of people who I think disagree with me, um, but I'll tell you my reasoning around this. I, I think it will grow for a few reasons. Number one, it's the perfect sport in the time of Corona. Hopefully we're not gonna be dealing with COVID for that much longer. Hopefully, God willing, these vaccines will be readily available, widely distributed very soon. Um, but you know, in the case that they're not, you know, we're social distanced for the most part when we're out trail running and, you know, when we're out running ultra races. So, you know, I think that alone puts the sport in a good position to capitalize on the new environment and the new situation that we're all confronting globally. Um, and again, sort of referencing back to my conversation with my Red Bull manager that I had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Aaron Lutzi, you know, I, I just feel like the trajectory of the sport is gonna grow in unison with YouTube. I call this the YouTubeification or the Instagramification of ultra running. 
you know, when people who are endurance curious, people who have been doing obstacle course races or triathlons or big city marathons, when they see a Ginger Runner film or a Billy Yang film or a Jamil Curry film on Instagram, or I'm sorry, on YouTube or either or, I mean, it's a no brainer. It's like, you wanna be running trails. You want to be doing ultra marathons, much more so than you want to run six laps around you know, some random city block in you know, some random city in order to reach the arbitrary number of you know, half Ironman or Ironman or similarly with obstacle course racing, you know, it's, and again, there, I have nothing against triathlon or obstacle course racing, but visually and in our social media age, it just doesn't hold a candle to trail and ultra running. When you see people hammering through the Alps, through the Pyrenees, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the Sierra, it just, it's not the same. It, there's no comparison. And so I think that, you know, sets the sport up for growth, you know, and I think growth is good. More eyes on the sport gives us more opportunity to tell the story of the sport, not only of the amazing athletes and these cool races, but it also allows us to tell the story about the spirit of the sport. And that's what I think will have a positive impact on people and the world, even if they never run an ultra. When they see what, that people are capable of this, that they're capable of doing it in these extreme environments, you know, in bad weather, in big mountains, and go through big highs and lows and come back and keep fighting and keep persevering and also being good sports the whole time and giving each other hugs and high fives and congratulations and not being cutthroat, asshole, competitive jerks, you know? That is a beautiful story that needs to be told. And, you know, that's why I think the sport is gonna continue to grow and why I want to see it grow because I think it will have an impact on the people it touches in a positive way just like it has for all of us, everybody listening to this podcast. That said, I definitely have a few concerns. Um, number one, you know, whether we're able to avoid, you know, our, our digital community devolving into negativity and controversy, you know, obviously social media is very good at doing that. And I think we, we could all do our part in ensuring that that doesn't happen, that we maintain the spirit that, we all you know, came to the sport for and stayed in it for is that feeling of sportsmanship and camaraderie and friendship. Um, and so my hope is that our, our online community can, can remain just like it is when we see each other at races around the world, is keep it upbeat, keep it supportive, give each other high fives digitally, build each other up, especially when we're down and not fall into the temptation of dividing, dividing our awesome community. I also have concerns that, you know, the U.S. is gonna be left behind the rest of the world in terms of maturation and professionalization of the sport. And that's not a result of Europe or Asia or Australia or New Zealand having better race directors. Um, but instead, you know, obviously because of the laws that allow them to have bigger events with more people and more kind of like high budget racing experience and, and often at a lower entry fee, I should say. Um, and I know that obviously not everybody cares about, you know, having these big sort of high budget race experiences, um, which I totally understand and appreciate. Um, but as somebody who cares about it, you know, commercially, you know, if we want the sport to grow and be successful, it'd be great to have the U.S. market also. <laughs> and luckily, um, sponsors in the sport, 
many of them, most of them, are U.S.-based companies who have, you know, big, giant, global footprints. But, you know, I worry that the U.S. is being left behind as the sport breaks into the next phase of its maturation and professionalization, just by virtue of the fact that it's really difficult to have, like, a European-level race in North America. Like, I would love it if we could have a UTMB-level race in North America. Uh, maybe not UTMB level because that's kind of singular in my opinion, um, but have like a European style race in North America. I don't know where we could host it, maybe in Canada, but to me, that's important. I want the U.S. to be part of the growth of trail and ultra running, and I fear that we are being left behind to a certain degree. Um so that's something that uh, I think about a lot as I think about the future of the sport. Um, another thing, you know, just to kind of add to what I would like to see um, or something that maybe I expect to see is some consolidation. To me, there's, there's so many race series now competing against each other, especially on the international stage, that it's starting to not make sense. And I think that you know, especially with the challenges of this year, COVID and the economics of race directing, of which I'm not totally educated, but I can imagine it's not been easy, um, if not completely catastrophic. Um, you know, I think we will see some consolidation there in the number of race series. And I think that would be a good thing, personally. To me, like, there's no reason for sky running and the golden trail series to exist simultaneously. Um, you know, they're probably directly competing with each other. Obviously Europe has a big market and a lot of very motivated mountain athletes. Um, but you know, what I, what I think should happen is that the ultra trail world tour should buy sky running or at least expand their event requirements to include shorter distance races and become sort of the premier event circuit in the world for both shorter distance and longer distance trail and ultra running. Um, the reason I think this is because I love the world tour. I think they're an amazing organization. They already have UTMB and Western States, which are the two most important races in the world. And I think they're artificially suppressing their ability to be successful by making it so that only races of a hundred kilometers or longer fit within the requirements of the race series. So shortening that requirement, opening it up to a more diverse group of races, bringing in world-class races of shorter distances, and then expanding the classifications within that rubric where you could have, you know, an overall short course champion, an overall long course champion, and then an overall champion, somebody who has shown the most versatility between the short races and the long races. I think that would be freaking awesome. And it's something that Spartan is doing already. You know, Spartan obviously was trying to make a big play in trail and ultra running starting in 2020. Unfortunately for them, it was obviously really bad timing, uh, but they have this model where they have the shorter races and the longer races. And I feel like the Ultra Trail World Tour could really do the sport a favor by consolidating, maybe buying sky running, expanding their series to include short races and long races. Then they'd directly be competing with Spartan. And then, you know, we'd have fewer, fewer of these race series to, to choose from. Um, just my opinion. Of course, I don't have any inside information. I don't know any of the decision makers, what they're thinking about. Uh, but to me, conceptually, that makes sense. Um, and also just make UTMB the official world championship already. You know, it's, it's already is. And so making that, making that official and part of, you know, it's already part of the world tour, but sort of like the world cha championship for the sport. And then maybe you make OCC the world championship of the short distance races within the, uh, UTMB rubric. I think that would be smart. So 
that's my that's my diatribe about the sport. I can't think if I'm forgetting anything. I know I have more thoughts than that, but that's all I can come up with for now. Maybe we'll talk more about that on a future episode. Okay, next question. This comes from Ian Lai on Instagram. Simple question. He just says, how many hours do you train on average in general? And do you take an off-season break? So thanks for the question. Of course, it depends. Uh, I do publish all my training on Strava, so you can see it there. Uh, but I would say on average, I probably do between 10 and 15 hours of training usually. And then maybe up to 18 or 20 hours a few times of year. And really only when I'm in like a really super high volume phase of training. Um, and, you know, when I'm really training, in other words, like when I'm in the thick of like doing a bunch of workouts, tons of long runs, when I'm on the program, when Jason Coop is just absolutely challenging me to be the best athlete I can be. I also really like to ride on my trainer two or three times a week uh, as a second session, usually in the afternoon, um, just to get some basic bonus aerobic work, usually very easy spinning, and uh, then do two, yeah, about two strength sessions a week as well. So, you know, all in all, that probably adds a total of five hours of training per week. And I think that is really, really key and something that I found to be hugely helpful, especially in the last uh, four or five years, is adding the trainer work, just the basic easy spinning as a second session in lieu of going out to get extra miles instead getting that basic uh, low intensity spinning done on a bike without any pounding. I think it was super, super helpful. And then also the strength training. Definitely go back, listen to my podcast with Matt Walsh, my physical therapist here, who really opened my eyes to this. It was an absolute game changer for me doing the strength work. Um, critical, critical, critical. So doing that twice a week, not skimping on that. Uh, is really important. So that's typically what my training looks like in terms of hours. And then to your question about breaks, yeah, I take a lot of breaks. I actually get compliments from other athletes about uh, my ability to turn it off and chill out after races. I've definitely been known to basically do absolutely nothing for two weeks after say a hundred mile race. and drink a bunch of beer and totally check out, not put my watch on at all, you know, lay on the couch, embrace the laziness. Um, that's just kind of part of my personality is that I'm just not good at moderation. I'm either like going hardcore on training or I'm going hardcore on chilling. And I guess it has its positives and negatives, but it's, it's helped me for sure. Um, so, you know, I think something that I do that might be a little bit different is that I take a lot of shorter breaks. So I probably take a few, like two or three week breaks throughout the year, rather than like a single six or eight, six or eight week break at the end of the year. I just feel like it's better for my personality. I'm better when I can break things up, take those, those couple weeks of being totally checked out, helps me get back into it rather than trying to stay on top of my game for nine or 10 months and then taking two or three months off at the end of the year. I just, um, I respond better taking many or more frequent shorter breaks. Um, and I think, you know, this touches on, you know, something that I think is really important and that is just like really communicating with your coach and figuring out what works best for you and making sure your coach knows that. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who can do workouts all year. You know, I can't feel like I'm on the program 12 months out of the year. Otherwise, I'll totally lose interest. I'll totally lose the desire to do the training that is necessary. And also, more importantly, lose the desire to push myself to the level that I need to, to succeed at the level that I want to. Um, and so I need that time to be like self-guided and mellow and off the program, but that wasn't always the case. You know, the younger me always wanted to be on the program and always followed every day's training plan to the T. You know, if it said you run for two and a half hours, I was the idiot running around outside my house to get, you know, the extra 
two minutes when I was at two hours and 28 minutes, you know, <laughs> to make sure that I got exactly two and a half hours. Now this older, more mature Dylan, he doesn't do that anymore. Um, and so I think that's, that's an important thing to learn about yourself and as you get more education in the sport and how you respond well. Um, yeah, you don't need as much instruction. Um, still great to have a coach get that guidance and something I would definitely not, not change for the world, but recognizing the rhythms that, um, you know, you find yourself performing best with and communicating those to your coach so he or she knows how he or she can be more successful in guiding you on your path. It's totally a collaborative thing. It's not, not a, a, you know, a single person creating a program and telling you what to do. It needs to be collaborative. So that is a little bit about my training. Okay, next question. This comes from Lily Kravitz on Instagram as well. And her question is, how many, uh, sorry, Lillian Kravitz. And her question is, how many days a week do you do PT exercises? Um, so this is also a, a great time to plug the podcast I just mentioned with my physical therapist, Matt Walsh, which I talked about just a minute ago. Um, he is an absolute genius on this stuff and it's definitely worth listening to that for a more longer form version of the answer I'm about to give. But basically what he says is that there's, there's two kinds of work to do. One is the everyday stuff, which is more like neuromuscular proprioception type work. And then there's the twice a week type work as well. So everyday stuff and twice a week stuff. The twice a week stuff is more actual like strength building work. So for example, doing deadlifts or something like that, where the neuromuscular work is more about like balancing on one leg, uh, doing short basic movements, allowing your brain to communicate with your ankle, for example. Um, and so, you know, to answer your question, I do a lot of stuff every day, especially for my ankles. Um, and maybe I'll do some content on this on pillars. And in fact, we have done content on this on pillars, but I'll expand on it for sure in the future about, you know, what I've been doing for my ankles, which have been my Achilles heel, so to speak in my career. And, um, yeah, right now within the app, we have a whole strength and movement module, which Matt leads. And um, the stuff that we have up now is all this neuromuscular strength and movement, um, everyday exercises for various running injuries, whether it's Achilles tendonitis, IT band syndrome, sprained ankles, patellar tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, all that stuff. We have all this everyday neuromuscular training material within the app. So check that out. And then, yeah, uh, I do need to get back in the gym and get more on my, my twice per week strength building stuff. I've been admittedly lazy on that as I've been busy with other things. But as we ramp back in the training, that's definitely going to be a priority. Um, next question, we'll make this the last one because we're coming up on about an hour here. So this question comes from Chad Stashek on Instagram. And Chad asks, it just generally dietary habits, tiredness. So like when do you push through versus when do you rest, training blocks, things like that. So thank you, Chad, for the question. Um, so dietary habits, you know, of course, you can ask, you ask 100 people this question, you're going to get 100 different answers. The thing that works for me, I eat mostly vegetarian. My wife grew up vegetarian. She's an amazing cook. We never have meat in our house. Therefore, I never eat it because she's always cooking really great vegetarian stuff. Obviously, we do have you know, sort of like moral and ethical reasons for that as well. But, you know, um, mostly it's because it's, it's kind of what I prefer. You know, we eat a lot of delicious, um, kind of whole food based meals, for example, just rice and sauteed greens and garbanzo beans and cashews and shallots all mixed up into a big bowl, big salads. Yeah. Lots of stir fries and Indian food and Mexican food. Um, so that's how, how I eat at home. Uh, I would say 
pretty darn clean, although I definitely am a sucker for like donuts and scones and stuff a few times a week. Uh, but mostly vegetarian and mostly pretty darn clean and healthy. Um, another thing that I think is really important to me and that I've found, you know, to be very important to me is that I have to eat breakfast. You know, I am not an intermittent faster. I, I am not a fat adapted athlete. Um, yeah, I just, it's night and day how much better I feel, you know, in my training, first of all, but just energy wise throughout the day, if I eat breakfast. Um, and so, you know, what I actually do is sort of like a reverse intermittent fast. I mean, not really, but like I front load my calories. I, I have the majority of my calories around my training. Um, and I feel like it is just much better for helping me to have better training sessions, helping me to recover better from those training sessions. Uh, and then, yeah, eat a little bit lighter towards bedtime and then you sleep better too. So, um, that's generally how I eat mostly vegetarian, mostly front loaded earlier in the day in terms of calories. And then another thing that I should mention here that I think is super important that also my coach, Jason Coop has really instilled in me is the importance of eating during my training, uh, not only for performance, but also for recovery. Obviously this is obvious, like this is not rocket science, but if you focus on this and you, you really emphasize eating during your training, you will notice this dramatically. So for example, you know, I used to be the type of runner where if I was finishing up a four or five hour long run, you know, I would purposely not eat a gel for the last hour, hour and a half, maybe even two hours of my run, just because I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm almost done. I don't really need another one where when Coop sort of flipped my thinking on this and I actually ate more in those last hour or two hours of my long runs, not only did I feel a lot better, obviously, during that training run and therefore get more out of it, adapt better, get fitter as a result, but then also you recover so, so much better for, you know, the next week's training plan or the next day's training program. If you eat during your training. So don't be that person who, you know, wants to be keto. I mean, don't, I mean, who am I to tell you what to do? But if you want to be better, this is what's helped, helped me eat more during your training, eat more around your training, and then eat less outside of it. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about, you know, when to push through being tired and when to rest. <clears throat> you know, I think this is something that it probably takes a mistake. Uh, you have to probably make the mistake once before you figure it out. Um, and, you know, to give you the example of this from my career, uh, the one time that Coop and I really went overboard in my training was before Western States in 2015, which was my first ever DNF and um, a race that I had really high ambitions for and a race that we trained our asses off for. And it was just clear to me in retrospect that I was absolutely cooked going into that race. I just had nothing left to give on race day. And what I learned from that is that I really needed to communicate better with my coach going back to the last question as well. Um, so, Coop didn't know that I had, was feeling so run down, that I was feeling so worked in my day-to-day -day training, and therefore he had no reason to back off the training intensity and volume. And we learned from that. We learned from that very quickly. And it's something that I'm super proud of because the next time that I felt like that was in 2018. And I communicated it and we adjusted the training. And one week we cut the total volume of my, my training in a week by like 25%, basically, in a critical, critical week of training at a moment when I just didn't feel like I was up to it. And then a few weeks later, I had the best race of my entire career at, UT, at uh, Ultra Trail Mount Fuji in 2018. And it was all because I took the time to communicate to my coach, hey, this doesn't feel right. Uh, I don't wanna do this training. How about we back it off? 
And that was exactly what I needed at a moment when, you know, the, the quote unquote right thing to do, at least instinctively would be just power through one more tough week, just power through it. Uh, but we made the right decision. Very, very proud of that. And uh, a huge, huge learning experience for me. But it, again, it probably ha- you probably have to make that mistake once before you, you really figure it out. You do have to kind of step over the line before you figure out where the line is. Um, so good luck with that. And then, yeah, just training blocks. I talk about this a lot. So just to sort of give a short recap, I, I'm much more keen on shorter training blocks, but that are done at v- with very high quality and that are very focused. You know, I like to have a moderate level of fitness throughout the year. And then when it's time to ramp, ramp quickly, hammer for six or eight weeks in a totally focused shred monk type mentality where I can actively, you know, push off other obligations, other, you know, potential stressful things um, to the back burner for a little while and be 100% focused for a shorter period of time and go into the races with, with good fitness, but with great energy. You know, for me, that's the key to performing well is to be fit, but to be psyched, to be just wanting nothing more than to just go out into the night totally solo and smash yourself. That is the key for me to being a good athlete. You know, of course, other athletes thrive off super long 12, 16 week training blocks. That's just, it's not me, it's not me. So again, goes back to the point I've made a couple of times. Learn yourself, know yourself, gain experience, make mistakes, learn from those mistakes figure out your rhythm, figure out your personality, because that's what's going to ultimately determine what you respond best to and how you perform best. Okay, that's enough pontificating for now. Thank you guys for listening to this Ask Me Anything podcast episode. If you enjoyed, please do leave a rating or review in iTunes. I would be super appreciative of that. Check out Pillars, pillars pillars.com, at Pillars on Instagram. So, so excited to start this year off with you guys. So happy you listen. If you, you know, if you have other topics of conversation you want me to touch that we didn't get to in this AMA, give me a holler. Maybe we'll do another one of these in the near future. But for now, we'll sign off. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 